Problem 2. Is there a way to extricate thought from a state model? Proposition 4. The exteriority of the war machine is attested to, finally, by noology. Thought contents are sometimes criticised for being too conformist, but the primary question is that of its form. Thought as such is already in conformity with a model that it borrows from the state apparatus, and which defines for it goals and paths, conduits, channels, organs, an entire organon. There is thus an image of thought spanning all thought, which is the special object of a noology, and which is like the state form developed in thought. And this image has two heads, corresponding to the two poles of sovereignty, the imperium of true thinking, operating by magical capture, seizure or binding, constituting the efficacy of a foundation. A republic of free spirits, proceeding by pact or a contract, constituting a legislative and juridical organisation, carrying the sanction of a ground. These two heads are in constant interference in the classical image of thought. A, quote, republic of free spirits whose prince would be the idea of the supreme being, end quote. And if these two heads are in interference, it is not only because there are many intermediaries and transitions between them, and because the first prepares the way for the second, and the second uses and retains the first, but also because, antithetical and complementary, they are necessary to one another. It is not out of the question, however, that in order to pass from one to the other, there must occur, between them, an event of an entirely different nature, one that hides outside the image, takes place outside. But confining ourselves to the image, it seems that it is not simply a metaphor when we are told of an imperium of truth and a republic of spirits. It is the necessary condition for the constitution of thought as principle, or as a form of interiority, as a stratum. It is easy to see what thought gains from this. A gravity it would never have on its own. A centre that makes everything, including the state, appear to exist on its own efficacy, or on its own sanction. But the state gains just as much. Indeed, by developing in thought in this way, the state form gains something essential, an entire consensus. Only thought is capable of inventing the fiction of a state that is universal by right, of elevating the state to the level of the universality of law. It is as if the sovereign were left alone in the world, spanned the entire ecumenon, and now dealt only with actual or potential subjects. It is no longer a question of powerful, extrinsic organisations, nor of strange bands. The state becomes the sole principle, separating rebel subjects who are consigned to the state of nature, from consenting subjects who rally to its form of their own accord. If it is advantageous for thought to prop itself up with the state, it is no less advantageous for the state to extend itself into thought, and to be sanctioned by it as the unique universal form. 
the particularity of states becomes merely an accident of fact, as is their possible perversity or their imperfection. For the modern state defines itself in principle as, quote, the rational and reasonable organization of a community, end quote. The only remaining particularity a community has is interior or moral, the spirit of a people. At the same time as the community is funneled by its organization toward the harmony of a universal, absolute spirit. The state gives thought a form of interiority, and thought gives that interiority a form of universality. Quote, the goal of worldwide organization is the satisfaction of reasonable individuals within particular free states. End quote. The exchange that takes place between the state and reason is a curious one, but that exchange is also an analytic proposition, since realized reason is identified with the state of right, just as the state, in fact, is the becoming of reason. In so-called modern philosophy, and in the so-called modern or rational state, everything revolves around the legislator and the subject. The state must realise the distinction between the legislator and the subject under formal conditions permitting thought, for its part, to conceptualise their identity. Be obedient always. The better you obey, the more you will be master, for you will only be obeying pure reason, in other words, yourself. Ever since philosophy assigned itself the role of ground, it has been giving the established powers its blessing, and tracing, decalcare, its doctrine of faculties onto the organs of state power. Common sense, the unity of all the faculties at the centre constituted by the cogito, is the state consensus raised to the absolute. This was most notably the great operation of the Kantian critique renewed and developed by Hegelianism. Kant was constantly criticising bad usages, the better to consecrate the function. It is not at all surprising that the philosopher has become a public professor or state functionary. It was all over the moment the state form inspired an image of thought, with full reciprocity. Doubtless the image itself assumes different contours in accordance with the variations on this form. It has not always delineated or designated the philosopher, and will not always delineate him. It is possible to pass from a magical function to a rational function. The poet in the archaic imperial state was able to play the role of image trainer. In modern states, the sociologist succeeded in replacing the philosopher, as, for example, when Durkheim and his disciples set out to give the Republic a secular model of thought. Even today, psychoanalysis lays claim to the role of cogitatio universalis as the thought of the law in a magical return. And there are quite a few other comp competitors and pretenders. Noology, which is distinct from ideology, is precisely the study of images of thought and their historicity. In a sense, it could be said that all this has no importance, that thought has never had anything but laughable gravity. But that is all that it requires for us not to take it seriously, because that makes it all the easier for it to think for us and to be forever engendering new functionaries. 
because the less people take thought seriously, the more they think in conformity with what the state wants. Truly, what man of the state has not dreamed of that paltry, impossible thing to be a thinker? But noology is confronted by counterthoughts, which are violent in their acts, discontinuous in their appearances, and the existence of which is mobile in history. These are the acts of a private thinker, as opposed to the public professor, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, or even Chestov. Wherever they dwell, it is the steppe, or the desert. They destroy images. Nietzsche's Schopenhauer as educator is perhaps the greatest critique ever directed against the image of thought and its relation to the state. Private thinker, however, is not a satisfactory expression because it exaggerates interiority when it is a question of outside thought. To place thought in an immediate relation with the outside, with the forces of the outside, in short, to make thought a war machine is a strange undertaking the precise procedures of which can be studied in Nietzsche. The aphorism, for example, is very different from the maxim, for a maxim in the Republic of Letters is like an organic state act, or sovereign judgment, whereas an aphorism always awaits its meaning from a new external force, a final force that must conquer or subjugate it, utilise it. There is another reason why private thinker is not a good expression, Although it is true that this counterthought attests to an absolute solitude, it is an extremely populous solitude, like the desert itself, a solitude already interlaced with a people to come, one that invokes and awaits that people, existing only through it, though it is not yet here. Quote, we are lacking that final force in the absence of a people to bear us. We are looking for that popular support. End quote. Every thought is already a tribe, the opposite of a state, and this form of exteriority of thought is not at all symmetrical to the form of interiority. Strictly speaking, symmetry only exists between different poles or focal points, foyers, of interiority. But the form of exteriority of thought, the force that is always external to itself, or the final force, the nth power, is not at all another image in opposition to the image inspired by the state apparatus. It is rather a force that destroys both the image and its copies, the model and its reproductions. Every possibility of subordinating thought to a model of the true, the just, or the right, Cartesian truth, the Kantian just, Hegelian right, etc. A method is the striated space of the cogitatio universalis, and traces a path that must be followed from one point to another. But the form of exteriority situates thought in a smooth space that it must occupy without counting, and for which there is no possible method, no conceivable reproduction, but only relays, intermezzos, resurgences, Thought is like the vampire. It has no image, either to constitute a model of or to copy. In the smooth space of Zen, the arrow does not go from one point to another, but is taken up at any point to be 
sent to any other point, and tends to permute with the archer and the target. The problem of the war machine is that of relaying, even with modest means, not that of the architectonic model or the monument. An ambulant people of relayers, rather than a model society. Quote, Nature propels the philosopher into mankind like an arrow. It takes no aim, but hopes the arrow will stick somewhere. But countless times it misses and is depressed at the fact. The artist and the philosopher are evidence against the purposiveness of nature, as regards the means it employs, though they are always first-rate evidence as to the wisdom of its purpose. They strike home at only a few while they are thought to strike home at everybody. And even these few are not struck with the force with which the philosopher and artist launch their shot. We have in mind in particular two pathetic texts, in the sense that in them thought is truly a pathos, an anti-logos, and an anti-mythos. One is the text by Artaud, in his letters to Jacques Rivière, explaining that thought operates on the basis of a central breakdown, that it lives solely by its own incapacity to take on form, bringing into relief only traits of expression in a material developing peripherally. In a pure milieu of exteriority, as a function of singularities impossible to universalize, of circumstances impossible to interiorize. The other is the text of Kleist, on the gradual formation of ideas in speech, über die allmächliche Verfütigung der Gedanken beim Reden. Kleist denounces the central interiority of the concept as a means of control, the control of speech, of language, but also of affects, circumstances, and even chance. He distinguishes this from thought as a proceeding process, proces, proces, and a process, processus, a proceeding and a process. A bizarre anti-Platonic dialogue, an anti-dialogue between brother and sister where one speaks before knowing while the other relays before having understood. This, Kleist says, is the thought of the gemut, which proceeds like a general in a war machine should, or like a body charged with electricity, with pure intensity. Quote, I mix inarticulate sounds, lengthen transitional terms, as well as using appositions when they are unnecessary. End quote. Gain some time, and then, perhaps, renounce, or wait. The necessity of not having control over language, of being a foreigner in one's own language, in order to draw speech to oneself and, quote, bring something incomprehensible into the world, end quote. Such is the form of exteriority, the relation between brother and sister, the becoming woman of the thinker, the becoming thought of the woman, the gemut, that refuses to be controlled, that forms a war machine. A thought grappling with exterior forces instead of being gathered up in an interior form. 
operating by relays instead of forming an image. An event thought. A hecaity instead of a subject thought. A problem thought instead of an essence thought or theorem. A thought that appeals to a people instead of taking itself for a government ministry. Is it by chance that whenever a thinker shoots an arrow, there is a man of the state, a shadow or an image of a man of the state that counsels and admonishes him and wants to assign him a target or aim? Jacques Rivière does not hesitate to respond to Artaud. Work at it. Keep on working. Things will come out all right. You will succeed in finding a method and in learning to express clearly what you think in essence. Cogitatio universalis. Riviere is not a head of state, but he would not be the last in the Nouvelle Revue Francaise to mistake himself for the secret prince in a republic of letters, or the grey eminence in a state of right. Lenz and Kleist confronted Goethe, that grandiose genius of all men of letters, a veritable man of the state, but that is not the worst of it. The worst is the way the texts of Kleist and Artaud themselves have ended up becoming monuments, inspiring a model to be copied, one far more insidious than the others. For the artificial stammerings and innumerable tracings, decalques, which claim to be their equal. The classical image of thought and the striating of mental space it affects aspires to universality. It, in effect, operates within two universals. Excuse me. It, in effect, operates with two universals. The whole is the final ground of being or all-encompassing horizon, and the subject as the principle that converts being into being for us. Imperium and Republic. Between the two, all of the varieties of the real and the true find their place in a striated mental space. From the double point of view of being and the subject under the direction of a universal method. It is now easy for us to characterise the nomad thought that rejects this image and proceeds otherwise. It does not ally itself with a universal thinking subject but on the contrary with a singular race, and it does not ground itself in an all-encompassing totality, but is on the contrary deployed in a horizonless mindlu that is a smooth space, steppe, desert, or sea. An entirely different type of adequation is established here, between the race defined as tribe and smooth space defined as milieu. A tribe in the desert, instead of a universal subject within the horizon of all-encompassing being. Kenneth White recently stressed the dissymmetrical complementarity between a tribe race, the Celts who, they, who feel they are Celts, and a space milieu, the Orient, the Gobi Desert. White demonstrates that the strange composite, the marriage of the Celt and the Orient, inspires a properly nomad thought that sweeps up English literature and constitutes American literature. Immediately we clearly see the dangers, the profound ambiguities that inhere in this enterprise, 
as if each effort and each creation faced a possible infamy. 4. What can be done to prevent the theme of a race from turning into a racism, a dominant and all-encompassing fascism, or into a sect and a folklore, micro-fascisms? And what can be done to prevent that oriental pole from becoming a fantasy that reactivates all the fascisms in a different way, and also all the fol folklores, yoga, zen, and karate? It is certainly not enough to travel to escape fantasy, and it is certainly not by invoking a past, real or mythical, that one avoids racism. But here again the criteria for making the distinction are simple. Whatever the de facto mixes that obscure them at a given level, at a given moment, the tribe race exists only at the level of an oppressed race, and in the name of the oppression it suffers there is no race but inferior, minoritarian, there is no dominant race. A race is not defined by its purity, but rather by the impurity conferred upon it by a system of domination. Bastard and mixed blood are the true names of race. Rimbaud said it all on this point. Only he can invoke race who says, quote, I have always been of an inferior race. I am of an inferior race for all eternity. There I am on the Breton shore. I am a beast, a nigger. I am of a distant race. My ancestors were Norsemen. End quote. In the same way that race is not something to be rediscovered, the Orient is not something to be imitated. It only exists in the construction of a smooth space just as race only exists in the constitution of a tribe that peoples and traverses a smooth space. All of thought is a becoming, a double becoming, rather than the attribute of a subject and the representation of a whole.